Welcome to Status. Today we'll be talking to uh, Helena Yonstater and Jinan Saad. Uh, we are at the MSF Mental Health Activity Clinic. Welcome to Status. Thank you. I'm glad that you guys are having us here. Thank you very much for your time. First of all, can you please tell us a little bit uh, about yourself uh, and what does it mean to be uh, an MSF Mental Health Activity Manager in Lebanon? Ah. Interesting. Yes. Well, I am. Uh, I come from Iceland, where I've been uh, uh, working as a clinical psychologist for uh, seven years before I was doing completely other things. Three years ago, I decided to join MSF for a number of reasons, and I've been both a mental health supervisor and a mental health activity manager, uh, which means a bit different things. A supervisor would normally be in one project. In Lebanon, I am based in Beirut as a in a coordination position, or if you will, which means that I kind of oversee and coordinate the different mental health projects that we are running in Lebanon. So I'm involved, let's say, in strategy, monitoring, reporting, and just an overall view of the project, but not in daily activities down to I'm not seeing patients, for example. Right. And how long have you been doing this for in Lebanon? So in Lebanon, I've been here now eight months. So eight I, months. Came, yeah, I came in January and now I have one and a half month left of, of the mission here. Oh, so I'm leaving okay. quite soon, yeah. Uh, what about you, Jinan? I'm a field communication manager with the Doctors Without Borders and SF in Lebanon uh, since two years almost. And uh, I'm working um, to um, supporting communication activities related to projects for all MSF missions and projects in Lebanon. Okay, yeah. nice, nice. What kind of mental health service MSF is able to provide in Lebanon for mm -hmm. refugees and uh, in your clinics in general? Mm -hmm. So in Lebanon, as in most projects, we say that we are an integrated project, the mental health, mm -hmm. meaning that we integrate ourselves mostly into our medical activities. So we place ourselves within uh, medical clinics where we are a bit relying on the medical activities from MSF to bring us as patients. Meaning that we want doctors, nurses, midwives and other medical staff, and of course everybody involved in the project, to identify people in need and possibly then referring them to us. But also in some projects we don't have, let's say, very large me medical activities, like here in Burj, there is not a lot of medical activities. And in, in another project in Akar, the medical activities are not really big. So in those areas, we kind of tend to go out from our clinics to, let's say, promote and uh, raise awareness for the activities that we're providing. So, sorry to interrupt you, when sure. you go out, uh, can, you t can you walk us a bit? Through it? Through it, yes. How do you go out and teach people <laughs> about mental health? It's actually quite a... It, well, it, I don't know how they do it, so... But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, I know how they, but right. how can they manage? Right, exactly. We, we truly go door to door. So we, you knock on people's doors, they we do. yourself. And it's amazing. They go, cool. they have a driver, they drop them off at the center of the town. Right. They identify according to a map and a Google GPS, blah, blah, blah. Yes. They go to this house, they knock on door and say, hi, I'm this and this person. I am a counselor educator, which is the health promoter for mental health for MSF. I would like to speak to you about mental health for a couple of minutes. Is that okay? And people say either yes or no. Mostly they say yes. Mostly they say yes. Can you imagine? Yeah. And in other projects, we are even going to informal tented settlement, uh, co collective shelter for Syrian refugees, sure. or uh, 
with yeah. going out in the just sea. Just walk into them. No, yeah. but they, they definitely inform them before that MSF team is coming. Of course, uh, people don't surprise know, them. Yeah, 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 people know that MSF is doing some activities in the region. So sure. the MSF health promotion team and mental health team are really, really based on community-based approach. Mm-hmm. So uh, that part of the activity is really related to community activities. Yeah. And Akar, they are also working in public schools in which they are working with nurseries. So yeah, yeah. it's a different approach to reach as much community as possible. Sure. So the team is usually locals or you also recruit from refugees? Like, do you have Syrian or Palestinian refugees working with you? Yeah. I mean, what, when what, they approach people? Yeah, yeah. What we try is that we try to have a good mix of people normally. Right. Um, in, uh, in the mental health and the medical services, what we need is, is skilled staff. Where we get them from is not really the biggest issue. Right. Yeah, exactly. Of course, it's better to have a bit of people who are from the areas. Some areas we have struggled a bit because we are lacking the skills in the areas. So we've had to actually uh, import people, if you will, or, or relocate people from Beirut up to right. Akkar. But slowly we're getting more and more people from Akkar, for example. Which, and, and here in Burj, we have some people you know, from within the camp, of course, working for us. And that creates more of, a, let's say, a, a trust value sure. between patient and... Sure. It's, it's good and bad, because it's good because then there's more connection and people are actually more willing to come and trust us. But okay. it's also, it puts a lot of pressure on the person who's from within the camp, right. because there are obviously some things we can't do. We are not... God, we are not of magicians, course, so course. we cannot fix everything. So it, it creates also a lot of, I mean, if you're personally involved, it, it's also, it's a very big stress factor for the people in general. So, yeah, mixture is okay. the best answer and, for and sure. How, uh, the, how the people who work with you from local communities feel about themselves being from in this community? Do they feel like they're giving back or they understand their community better in order to introduce you to it? They feel extremely proud to be, let's say, representing or yeah, their community, they feel very attached and they have a very big, like their pride in trying to make, I don't know, trying to improve our services for the community. Mm-hmm. I think it's even more for them than, than us who are not from within the community. Right. Understandably, I mean, they have a community who's been struggling for years and years and they have a much better understanding of what are the actual needs and struggles. So, so can you feel like they are uh, taking this experience and integrating it in their own communities, regardless of being an employee with Amazon? Now I'd, I'd have to get inside the head of somebody to, to be actually... No, of no, course, no. of course. But uh, I would say that uh, I mean they are our ambassadors for sure in the communities in and out of work and they can bring a lot of information to you know communities and for sure that is a you know very it's a very big part of our work here for sure yeah, but also the, the challenges they are part of the community but when once you're with MSF there is rules and principles sure. that you also should respect yeah. so if they are having problem and being neutral and objective they learn it, they learn this in MSF also yeah, because yeah. they are working with an international organization. So yeah. it's really a balance between knowing the the society and being part of a society and then try to be neutral and objective yeah, and yeah. and humanitarian as much as possible to fill to, to be uh, in, in harmony with MSF principles. Mm-hmm. That's very important for such position exactly. people who are sure. playing it. Nice. But then maybe if we continue a bit, I mean how do we do the community Please work? Do. For example in a car. 
we knock on doors, okay? We speak to people for a while and we do, we collect a few houses, let's say, people from a few households and then we make a small group where we actually talk to, let's say, five to 20 people at the same time, where we do some education about what is mental health, why is it important, why should we seek help, what are the most common symptoms people are experiencing, why are they common, why is it a natural or a normal response to abnormal situation, why you shouldn't feel bad about it, and why you should actually come to us. So this is what we call an awareness uh, group at work. After that, people either come to our clinic to do some individual counselling with our psychologists or they would be referred to further groups. So if the issues or symptoms or, or, or complaints are not severe or not too much, we can actually just continue with a group where right. we provide some more education right. about more specific issues. So uh, let's try this. I am, I'm sitting in my house, you knock on my door. Um, and you tell me um, you, are, you are here from MSF, you want to provide mental health service to the community. Um, me being um, not informed at all about mental health mm -hmm. and uh, affected by the social stigma of thinking that people who seek mental health are, are either, either mentally uh, deranged mm -hmm. or crazy and yeah, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. How do you how do you kill this stigma and show that actually everyone needs mental health? Sure. Our slogan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah. One of our slogans is as the body can get ill, the mind can too. My favorite at the moment, maybe we should add it in our uh, in our promotional activities. My favorite at the moment is this. What you're feeling is if you've been through a crisis or some conflict or you've been in a, you know, in a traumatizing situation or a harsh living condition, your reactions are normal reactions for abnormal situation. Right. And I love this. Right. And this is so right. true. And this is what we try to tell people. Listen, in different ways, we try to uh, give people pictures of people who are experiencing something and we ask them to try to identify themselves. Are you in a situation like this? Are you, you know, dealing with, maybe you're the single uh, mom of a big household, or you have had some issues in the past in your home country, in a conflict, or you've, you've lost a loved one in the, in the recent years, or something bad has happened. So we try to give people pictures, and then and people start to identify themselves, and then we can say, okay, a person who's lost a loved one might be feeling like this, this, and this. Could be that could could it be that you're feeling like this? And if we go this way, instead of telling people, listen, I think everybody who has a mental health problem should come to us. They're like, yeah, but I don't have. Okay, so it's about the approach. It's uh, about the approach and easing up the process for exactly. people. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, I was working in South Sudan, for example, where the word they use in Arabic or in in Urdu in the country in the language they were speaking in the camp there was a person with an empty brain. An empty Nobody's going to come wow. to the clinic That's who so serves bad. people with empty brain. Yeah. So we even had to invent new words, right. not even just approaches on how to talk to things. And this is what we try to do. Not saying that this community is talking about an empty brain at all, but of course people talk, I mean, we all say, well, oh my God, I think he's crazy. Meaning what? We mean that he has a mental health problem, yeah? And is that anything that should be so abnormal that we refer to everybody who's behaving in a strange way with that name. So these are things we try slowly to attack or discuss or yeah, by different means. So my next question is, um, 
in Lebanon, uh, amongst the mainstream Lebanese society, uh, mental health now mm. is being considered as a luxury. So if you have money, you go seek a psychologist or psychiatrist. Uh, you are providing mental health to communities that are displaced, um, live in impoverished conditions. And so your approach is, is healing, directly healing through mental health. Mm -hmm. how, how do you show that it's not merely a pill, I'll give you a pill and you feel better? So normally, I mean, MSF in general, and I think psychology in general is, is changing. Mm. Uh, or MSF has never really had the approach of, of using a lot of what the pills, what we call psychotropic medication. Right. That has never been our approach. Mostly because psychology is changing and has been changing a lot in the last recent years. We have been developing uh, intervention techniques for different mental health disorders like depression, anxiety, right. post-trauma post symptoms and different things. We have been developing like short-term, uh, very solution-focused intervention techniques, meaning that no, we just don't sit down and talk because talking is not really going to solve anything. But we also believe that pill is not going to be, uh, solve anything. And actually science and research uh, studies have actually shown us that these new types of intervention therapy techniques are actually giving results that go beyond pills okay. and of course much more than normal talking. So, so you have a specific strategy in approaching uh, communities in order to heal. Do, do you do like group programs? We do both individual and group. Due to different resources, we can't do groups everywhere. Shatila doesn't really give us a lot of space because right. it's really small. So there we focus more on individual. In Nakar, where our approach is more community-based, for example, we do a lot of the group sessions in the community, hoping that we can at least solve some issues for some of the people attending so they don't have to come to our clinic. So we are now in Bush Barajne Palestinian refugee camp. Um, it's a, it's a place that, that has refugees already, now there's more refugees. Uh, who walks into a clinic in this camp? What kind of people? Palestinians, Syrians, Lebanese? Uh, so, Burjul Parashni is, pri well, there's a, um, the majority is Palestinians. Okay. Uh, for some reason, uh, people who come to Burj clinic are mostly within the camp. Right. Which is kind of different in Shatila, where the population is also coming to us, but also people who live far away from Shatila. Right. So let's focus on Burj just for one minute. Okay. And then in Burj, yes, there is the majority is Palestinian uh, patients for sure. Okay. Even though they have some services in, in different places, they have been coming to us, uh, possibly mostly because the, the services that both Palestinian and Syrians can access for mental health in the camp have not been available. Mm -hmm. So we have been nearly the only mental health actor in Burj al for the last year. Unra, yeah, for free, sorry, free. of course, yeah, Completely there is a lot free. of, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Unra was doing uh, mental health before, they haven't been doing it for quite a while, okay. but at least now they have a three-month project. I don't know how if they get funding for a, a longer term, but at least now they have a three-month project, which releases a bit the pressure on our. So what clinic. would you provide me if I'm if I'm suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder? I'm depressed. I come to to you mm -hmm. now. Uh, what, what can I get? Who do I see? So we have clinical psychologists who are uh, have a master's degree from universities in, in Lebanon or, or elsewhere, who are trained not only in the theories but also technically trained to do these right. intervention techniques that I was talking about right. before. So what we normally provide is a thorough assessment 
where we identify your biggest complaints in terms of emotional behavioral symptoms. From those symptoms, we can tell if you have possibly a depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, as you call it. Uh, from there, we do what we call, a f we, we formulate the case a bit so we can see the symptoms of, in, in terms of ha what aspects of your life or behavior or emotions they're actually touching. And th from there, we can try to, let's say, unscrew a bit, you know, different areas mm -hmm. of your life and try to help you to approach things in a different way, think about things in a different way, which hopefully in the end will improve and, the way you feel. And people, uh are seeing the benefit in this? Uh, like what people yeah, respond yeah. to? Yeah, no, for sure. We have success stories? Yeah, yeah, we have many success stories. Oh, okay, okay, cool. okay no, but let's face it. I mean, I'm going to be honest. We've had multiple challenges in terms of, let's say, patient follow-up. I'm going to say it's a big mixture of a lot of things, the reasons behind it. One is for sure that we are working in communities or populations which are quite medicalized. People, they go to the doctor and they don't complain about things, but they ask for specific medication. So they're not coming and say, hi, I have a headache, but they come to the doctor and say, hi, I need paracetamol. Mm -hmm. So this is, of course, the, one of our struggles. Then we have stigma. If you don't have a very, very press pressing mental health problem, it's not for sure that you're going to come and see a six to mm. ten sessions or five to mm. seven sessions. Mm. You're going to come for one, or three, one to three sessions. As soon as you start to feel a little bit better, you're going to say, Kalas, it's good, huh? yeah. I'm fine. I don't need yeah. you, this brain doctor anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things. Patient commitment is a huge thing because we don't give you a pill. We need you to work with us. I need you to understand why it's important and I need you to go through the whole thing. But people have more pressing issues. You don't have food. Are you really going to see if you're depressed or not? Uh, your children are not doing really well in school because there's some discrimination or whatever. Are you really going to come and see a psychologist instead of helping your kid? You don't have transportation. So, yeah, different, let's say, I don't know if it's fair to say practical. No, different, different normal life or, or abnormal priorities. life. Priorities, it's exactly. It's priorities. Yeah, it's priorities. So... Uh, it's not because people don't want to give us the commitment needed for the therapy, it's just that they sometimes can't. So let's say that 60% are actually able to come and commit to what we offer, 40% not always can. So let's say we have 60% success. That's a good issue. It's not bad. It's not but bad at all. Yeah, I would, it breaks my heart because I know I can, we can help these people. I know we can help the rest of the 40%, even with not so much effort. Right. But we haven't been able to. My next question is a bit more tricky. Uh, I want to say from your experience, have you noticed that uh, in Lebanon there has been um, a mental, one mental health condition or disease that has, has been mm. prevalent, noticeably developing among Syrian refugees since they came sure. here? That is not a tricky question. <laughs> we have data, so it's quite... Uh, <laughs> and I love tricky for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, the thing is, it's, I mean, we have diagnostic techniques where we, work, like I told you before, we work on symptoms. Those symptoms tend to cluster themselves into what we call mental health disorders like depression and all that. And our data is, this is actually recorded in our data. Uh, when we started to work four years ago, five, five, yeah, we've been here for five, six years, and especially amongst the Syrians, we saw, of course, disorders or mental health issues that were mostly related to conflict in their home countries, mm -hmm. either trauma, traumatic events or, or just the fact that they were displaced or the trip from their country to here or different things. 
uh, or issues concerned with the fact that now you're in a new country without your family and your social support, which means that normally in the beginning we were either seeing people with post-trauma syndromes, what we call, or what we call adjustment disorder, which are a little bit less than this post-traumatic. But uh, what is an adjustment? Adjustment, I'd say it's more uh, acute. Uh, stress disorder for less traumatic events. Not traumatic, traumatic like natural disasters or seeing somebody die or witnessing violence. Exactly. Just by the fact that now you're here, maybe without your husband, with your four kids, you're living in an unknown area, you don't really know your way around, and you're scared. And your body creates these, you know, new symptoms that you don't really know what are. So those were the issues that we were seeing at first, even with the kids. We were had so many kids with huge emotional problems and of course not fitting into schools and things because yeah. they didn't feel good. This has changed completely since with, with, time. Five, with time. Since 2012, let's say? Yeah, since 2011, 12, 13, even up to 14, this was our prominent issues. How did it change? Now we're seeing more depression, hopelessness, people who have uh, yeah, really lost a lot of just the will to, to so, continue. So basically, yeah, it kind of deteriorated into something uh, bigger. Yeah. It's a shift Sh- shifted. With the long uh, duration of the crisis, people yeah, they yeah. didn't knew they will uh, they will stay in Lebanon for six seven years now. Yeah. And when this start to appear like uh, there is no hope, the uh, future is, uh, is is not really clear for them. They shift from post trauma to something else, so, depression. Yeah. And is it gender uh, div- like is it more women than men? Is it more men than women in this condition? No, for I mean we see more women than men, so I cannot really completely generalize. And of course our number are only the people who come to see us. So, of course, we don't know what's out there. But let's say that uh, it's a general one. Kids, yeah. Kids, women, men, older, younger. You know, even the adolescents, we're seeing massive uh, issues related to to depression. Reason being, it's a natural response to an abnormal situation. Again. This is not a life that they expected. This is not the life, I mean, they wanted. This is not, they were not ready to stay here for six years. Uh, situation has de- deteriorated in Lebanon in general. For refugees, we have to say, yeah, there is a, there is a lot of un- unemployment, poverty, there is less financial aid. There is many issues that people are actually feeling that, yeah, it, it kind of, I'd say, steals their hope and their... And this is a tricky section because uh, for the, for a refugee, for a pers- person who lives in temporary uh, situation, uh, displaced, at what at what point uh, one seeks a mental health assistance uh, instead of just mm. like seeking uh, no. severe uh, medical? Situation? Exactly. So th- it's actually kind of a good question, and this is why we want to rely a lot of on on our medical stuff. Uh, a lot of mental health issues are actually translated into body symptoms, bodily symptoms. Anxiety is normally hyperarousal, uh, palpitations, heavy breath, some chest pain, don't sleep so much, don't have a lot of uh, appetite. Depression is more like, I'm always tired, I have a headache, I want to sleep so much, I feel that I need to sleep like 10-15 hours a day. So it's more in that direction. And those things are normally something that people would complain to a doctor. Exactly. Meaning that 
uh, if we were not providing mental health in general in public, uh, in, in primary health care, uh, the doctors would be more over flooded by patients, by com physical complaints. So your doctors refer them to the mental exactly. health. Exactly. Okay, it's yeah. an internal referral That's process. That's yeah. And midwife yeah. also. Midwife yeah. is referring. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. I mean, most of our children, for example, they come to the pediatric doctor who is clever enough, and of course we have trained them and given them some referral criteria, yeah. or help them or teach them to detect the mental health problems and kind of distinct them from the physical ones. So we have kids with like bedwetting issues which is a huge, huge uh, mental health problem. Bedwetting is normally not a physical or a medical problem, but normally resulting from insecurity and fear on a, on a child's behalf. So when a doctor sees a child who's wetting his bed more than X times a week and he's above three or five years old, it normally means refer. The underlying reason could be completely different from child to child. Of course. Yeah. But... And that's the thing, many of those problems in children and adults, they translate into some physical or possibly some behavioral problems, like aggression, like anger, yeah. like yeah, heavy emotions. So our doctors and nurses and even our, what we call crowd controllers are trained to detect these problems in people from the outside or from their stories and refer them to us. That's 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 massive in a sense. It's it's progressive. Where uh, in in Lebanon, a Lebanese person goes to a doctor, uh, a woman normally saying, "I'm suffering from back uh, mm -hmm. pain," mm -hmm. and they usually give her a bag of pills sure. instead of uh, sure. treating the psychological. Sure. Can, and can you imagine the challenge when a doctor, okay, a woman who's tired, who has many children, is possibly alone providing for her family, comes to a doctor and says, doctor, I am always tired, I have headache, I don't eat properly, I don't sleep properly, please help me. And he says, well, I can't give you a pill. You're going to have to talk to this. Can you imagine the challenge in the I beginning? Know. When a person is actually coming for a quick solution, of course, but in the end it takes them maybe six to ten sessions and a lot of commitment and a lot of effort yeah. with a lot of support of course. Yeah. yeah. So that's a challenge. That's nice. Yeah. What options would the MSF opt for uh, in case of treatment? Is it medical based or do you also provide psychotherapy? For instance, uh, knowing that the majority of refugees are children, mm -hmm. so uh, if an autistic child comes to MSF, how much chance this mm -hmm. child, a Syrian refugee, autistic child, has to mm -hmm. a chance to survive in such conditions? What would you do yeah. for this child? I mean, so maybe first what needs to be cleared, if people are listening to this and want to actually, you know, come for, for services for us, is that we, so mental health uh, means emotional or behavioral problems. We are not neurologists. We are not uh, speech therapists. Okay. We are not, okay. yeah. Okay. So we don't provide any services for developmental, neurological, okay. uh, learning disabilities. Quite, yeah. But that we leave to specialists. But do you have specialists? Sure. In that so we don't, MSF, okay, but we but rely on external. You saw you refer sure. people. And, and who covers the financial cost of this? So for refugees, normally there are NGOs doing the same, exactly the same as us. They provide free service for all vulnerable populations. We have NGOs, in, not so many in Burj, but around Burj, uh, around Shatila and Sabra, where we have NGOs providing free assessment and possibly some intervention problem uh, techniques or intervention medical interventions for these issues so 
uh, we, let's say, we make the first assessment or the screening, knowing that there is a neurological or a developmental disorders behind it, we would normally uh, refer to the centre, okay. to, to this uh, external lecture. But we would normally provide both the kid and the parents with some emotional support. So normally if kids have some of these problems, they are a bit, uh, let's say, difficult to handle, or themselves are feeling not perfect in like social interaction or not feeling so good at school. So we would provide them with some education, some emotional support, and even some, let's say, parental guidance for, parental the, guidance. for the parents. But the actual disorders would normally be treated elsewhere. Do you notice that the children of Syrian refugees who were born here and now they are six, six years old or seven years old, uh, do they have like a certain psychological symptom that has been developing amongst children, being in displacement, uncertainty at all times, uh, missing school, no, no certain routine in life? Yes. Yes, there is, for sure. It, it translates into different symptoms that can be seen yeah. from the child, but I will generally say that insecurity and kind of, a, let's say, fear, are something that we see in most of the children that come to our clinics. Uh, now, and this I say without any judgment, just observing what I see and knowing the, the situation for the Syrian refugees, for example. I mean, we have children who have been here for many years, with parents who have been here for many years. First, possibly traumatized or having you know symptoms for tra trauma, now more developing into hopelessness and depression and other. All of these issues are going to, let's say, decrease the emotional stability a parent can give to a child. Uh, or, yeah, let's say, emotional security that a parent can give to a child. We also know from uh, psychological knowledge in general that children need a lot of emotional security, whatever they are, whatever they are from. Yes, children here are more independent from the beginning, and I think they are, let's say, tougher than kids in Europe, for example, for sure. But children are children. And a three-year-old child in Syria, in Shatila, or in Iceland, they need exactly the same things. If they don't feel secure, they're going to feel uh, scared. They're going to have their needs not, uh, their needs not met, and that's going to translate into symptoms like behavioral problems, either at home in school, aggression, uh, let's say withdrawal from people in general, speech problems, voluntary ones, not developmental ones, uh, all kinds of other physical issues like physical complaints, bedwetting as we were talking about and different things. And these are things we see here in a much, much higher prevalence than in a normal, I don't know, European city somewhere or wherever we are in the world, but that is for sure. What's the ramifications from this pattern when it accumulates with time? Does it, does it mean that we're going to have a generation that is completely depressed? <laughs> now you're going to get me crying. <laughs> I get so emotional when I start to talk about I the know, kids it's a, here. It's a very emotional <laughs> topic, but it's, it's... Okay, so let's go. Can you ask the question again? <laughs> uh, Can I add one thing about Yes. This? Uh, regarding children, in addition to all what uh, Helena already said, there is also problem of uh, 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 children not going to school, uh, a big percentage. 
and another percentage of children who are forced to work or to, sure. to really be part of the economic uh, system for their family and uh, they are they are children are finding more, more opportunity for work than the, their fathers, the fathers and, yeah. uh, and mothers so there's children working their children without school and their children not having emotion uh, enough emotional sure. security so that all these elements yeah, contribute yeah. to our very yeah. Yeah, yeah and i mean we see children here being forced to take, take a lot of responsibility for providing for their family, for even if for emotional support for their whole family, even taking responsibility for their, I don't know, seven siblings because somebody is away for work. And yes, in a way, it's, it's good for children to toughen up. But, but everything is, has a, has a limit. The child is gone. They're not living their yeah. childhood. I mean, we, I, I see those kids sometimes, even in sessions, because I, I join sessions sometimes, and I've seen a 10-year-old boy here, for example. He's completely and utterly responsible for his whole family. Wow. Wow. 10-year-old. Wow. He's buying food. He's, he's providing the money. I mean, his parents are away. Well, his father is away. His mother is here. But she's completely unable to take care of the family. So he's 10 year old. But maybe not that we are on the topic now and mm. we are concerned. Uh, I'm concerned about this generation because ah. how these refugee children uh, as a generation would mm -hmm. develop mm -hmm. in such uh, conditions. Oof, it's very hard to say. I don't know. Maybe we can take Palestinians as, right. a, as a good example. Right. Because they are still here after many years. And they're not depressed, all of them. No. So, I I don't think we have we're gonna have Syrian children or community in general. Uh, if everything goes back to normal at one point, people can go home or they can continue with their so life somewhere else. If it's reversible, I don't think no that we're gonna have generations of horribly mentally disturbed people. No. Uh, most of those things that we're talking about they are resolved at one point, with time. Okay. Uh, knowing that, knowing that uh, let's take for an example, uh, a person who, is, uh, th who goes through a trauma, let's say, watches horrible violence or somebody, something horrible happened to the, one of the closest family members. Uh, let's say 10 people watch this. Uh, after three days, all of them are shocked. They're all reacting in a different way, but they all react in a certain shock. One is numb, one is on edge, one is not sleeping, da da da. After one month, only four of them are going to still have issues. Okay. Every one of them will remember it. Every one of them will be sad, but only four of them have responded in a way that is mentally not healthy. Right. After six months, one even has recovered without anything. Okay. After six months, three of the 10 are still having issues. Okay. Some of them have fantastic families or somebody who, I don't know, it does exactly around them what needs to be done. So one or two more are gonna recover. So we're gonna have the one. Okay. And I'm not saying it's this one or this one. And oh. I cannot predict if it's gonna be you, me or, or none. Okay. But yeah, so let's say that with time, with some support, with reversed, situation yeah. with improved life conditions with education with family with friends everything most of them will recover but we I, are quite resilient people in uh, general but are you able to counter that through your uh, group therapy 
What would you do at a group therapy, for example? Yes. Wait, there's charging people who's improving. Yeah, I mean, let's, okay. okay. For, for me, the thing is, in a situation like here, it's especially in the beginning, yeah. where we have people with trauma. Trauma symptoms are something that develops a certain time after a trauma, mm -hmm. and at a certain point it becomes a problem because people start to respond to it in, a, in the wrong way. Right. Let's say. Right. Everybody will experience something. It's only the people who respond to it in a very negative or a wrong way that have actually will have problems with it. Uh, if we can prevent that in the first month after a trauma by educating people about what's going to happen now and please don't respond in this way, please do like this, 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 that's going to be, uh, that's going to reduce the, you know, 10 people, it's going to reduce that, it's going to, to say that, okay, only one person after the six months is going to have these problems, yeah. even not possibly this person. Right. So there's a lot that can be done, uh, both as a prevention and as a first measure, that doesn't really take the whole therapy process. Right. So massive education, massive talking about this, massive knowledge about social, how social systems can react when there is a trauma or when there is a harsh living conditions, what we can do to, you know, and this is possibly the more important than anything else. Um, I don't know if that answers your... It, it does answer my question, but I also want to expand a bit about uh, how would you approach a group in a group therapy? What techniques ah. do you use and so on? Okay. Like uh, is it cognitive behavior? So there's, I mean, if a group is a group and you can talk to them or you can play with them or you can make intervention. Exactly. So there's a lot of different things. In MSF, we mostly <clears throat> rely on two things. We rely on what we call education groups mm. or support groups or something that is a mixture of those. Education groups meaning that if we have a diverse group of people, we would educate them about different mental health issues, what are the symptoms, and how we would give them some tools and techniques on how to deal with them. Okay. So we can prevent the issues from developing into something severe. Uh, sometimes we do a group like this only for depression. So we select only depressed people. Okay. And we do more education, we give you more tools, and we possibly individualize a bit what right. we're doing. So it's get, getting to be more in the direction of a therapeutic group. Like a one-on-one. -on -one. Exactly. Uh, what we're also doing is a lot of what we call support groups, where we have people coming together with, let's say, similar type of issues. And instead of me being troubled all, all alone at home with why am I like this, yeah. why am I such yeah. a weak person, how am I not handling yeah. the situation in a better way? If I speak to you guys and I figure out, wow, you are amazing people, but you have the same problems as me. So can we get some support from each other so we both normalize our situation, knowing that, okay, I'm not crazy, it's other people too, but also I can ask you, how have you been dealing with it? And you can tell me, listen, what I've done now is that I've done like this, this, this in the morning, and it makes me feel better. So we're kind of exchanging but that's the best Between way the for people to get out of exactly, their heads. Exactly, exactly. So this we've been trying to do more and okay. more uh, and is something that we are now more developing in terms okay. of because now we have, I don't know, a, a, li a little bit more complicated situation with this harsh living conditions and people with more of and more course. depression. So we feel that we can do more in, in groups. So like in, in camps, what they call in here uh, informal settlements, mm -hmm. would you go sit with a camp and like sure. do group sessions for the camp itself? Sure. Okay. Yeah. That's what we do in, so in Akkar, we're both 
uh, working in informal settlements yeah. and in villages in general. Uh, in Akkar, there is less like informal settlements maybe than in Bekaa. Yeah. Um, there is more uh, people have just moved into the communities in in in, uh, in uh, empty spaces. So we go, yeah, and we gather people together and we do exactly like that. I want to go back a bit about uh, when people approach you for mental health and what situation would you would your um, uh, therapist or psychologist describe pills and in what situations mm. would they mm. approach uh, therapy, psychoanalytical therapy or group therapy, mm-hmm. how the referral happens? So normally uh, we don't provide, in MSF, normally we don't provide psychiatric consultations. Okay. So we normally rely on other NGOs or other uh, institutions to do that so we refer meaning of course that because our numbers are normally that low we don't need to provide the service Uh, what we do is that we have psychologists they are clinical psychologists trained in assessment and they're trained Trained in trained by no by uh, universities in Lebanon by yeah of course by us for sure so we provide them with guidelines on how to assess and how to provide the intervention techniques uh, most successful for each problem, like depression. So we provide guidelines on how to intervene, how to do the therapy. Normally, if people don't respond to that, or if the problem is severe enough, we refer to a psychiatric institution or an NGO. In Beirut, for example, we refer most of our patients to IMC, which have been doing a fantastic job in in psychiatric consultations, for example. So normally, let's say that we we try for three to five sessions to do what we are trained to do. If it doesn't work or we feel that the patient might benefit also from medication, we refer to IMC. But we are also, of course, ethically responsible that if we have patients who are either possibly suicidal, possibly a danger to others, or patients who are very unlikely to recover without either being in, uh, hospitalized or at least with medication, then we do that from the beginning. Now that you mentioned suicidal cases, actually, uh, I was intrigued by uh, a study, um, I forgot who made it, that showed the, uh, the level of suicide among Syrian men. Embrace. I yeah. think it's embrace. Yeah. Increased since 2013 yes. uh, drastically each year, especially in Al-Halwe and Shatila. Sure. I want to understand this phenomenon. I mean, I know that being in such a displacement and mm. harsh conditions leaves a person with no options. Uh, but why it's specifically men who are approaching suicide? Now, this happens in every crisis in the world. It's not specific to Syria or anything. We had the financial crisis in Finland. We had young men. Uh, the, the frequency of suicide from young men increased. We, we've had this in Iceland, we've had this in many, many cultures. So it is a thing, for sure. Men, young men, uh, commit suicide at a higher frequency than other popu- uh, groups of population. And this increases during any type of crisis. Let's look at it from the other side. What makes a person make that choice? Because it's like the ultimate form exactly. of escape, right? Yeah, yeah. So people would normally say, okay, it's either selfish or weak or I don't know. That's normally the judgment we hear from outside. Yes. Now, working with people who have been in this state gives you a lot of insight into how they are thinking. And what we know so far from research, from, yeah, from research of, of many people, the factors predicting suicide mm-hmm. is hopelessness. Hopelessness. Exactly. So uh, it doesn't matter 
even, and it's even hard to, I don't know, install the hope. It has to come. Exactly. Exactly. So even if a helpless person reads something on the news, if they don't believe it, it's just not going to help. So something has to change inside. Possibly there are personality differences and whatever. Of course yes. there are, but that is not the main issue. People, uh, uh, people who have lost hope, who don't see a way out, who think that they would be better off dead mm. for some reason, mm. they will make this choice. It's a big choice because um, knowing in, in monotheism, Islam, Christianity and Judaism, uh, sure. a person who commits suicide is instantly sure. uh, considered so, a non-believer. Exactly. So even in these cultures, it's going to be a bigger choice or it's going to be exactly. a, a, a different choice for sure. In my culture, it's not considered a sin. Right. It's just a horrible personal right. loss, of right. course, but it's still a horrible thing. So, exactly. yeah. So what I'm thinking is the level of despair that pushes sure. people to take that, yeah. Sure. The thing is, normally, if a person who is suicidal and, let's say, is on the edge of actually committing suicide, this person can normally be talked out of it. Really? If they just get help. If with they're on the edge. Exactly. If they just, I'm not saying at the edge of jumping somewhere just yeah, yeah, if yeah, they're yeah. close to but let's say that yeah it. let's say that now this is the decision i just I, I think i would be better off dead they're looking for options how can i do yeah. it where can i do yeah. it yeah. or anything like this let's say that even this close to committing suicide if this person is approached by somebody who uh, is skilled enough or knows what to say and how to do it they can normally be stopped have you guys encountered such cases? Many cases. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As Were a psychologist, you able to talk them out? Sure. Oh, wow. So in the, the thing is, normally this is a state of despair. Normally the despair comes from your uh, situation. But the fact is that the harsh living condition, the situation, creates emotional problems within us that actually makes it harder for us to see uh, sensible solutions. Mm. So when you when we're to saying that we want to talk some sense into somebody mm. it's actually about this oh. i don't know if you want to hear the neurological explanation yeah, for of it course, please. so we have two brains we have two parts of our brain okay one is a very emotional one one is a very practical or a sensible one yeah. that's the emotional one is our uh, surviving brain it's right. our survival mode it's our emotional animal right. mode when I'm scared, for example, let's say a lion is behind me, that, that part of my brain is active, telling my whole body to run as fast as I can. Am I supposed to, at this point, to sit down and contemplate about, hmm, which way, right or up or down or no? No, of course not, I'm supposed to run. So my sensible brain is just not there. So when our emotions are really, really high, our, sen our sensible brain is not really active. And this is what happened when people are in a bad state. Even it doesn't take a suicidal person, it takes me. Yesterday evening, being a bit stressed because my mission is ending and I have so much to do. Honestly, I couldn't put together nine plus six. Right. So right. how do we expect who's somebody who's in despair? Right. This is why suicide watch in a society in general mm. is the most important prevention measure we can do. Because if this person is met by the right person at the right time, we can save them. How would you ease this pressure? Because the community, it's, it's so stigmatized to speak to someone in the community about I am, I'm having suicidal tendencies, you're, you're sure. instantly being thought of as uh, dangerous or, or crazy or yeah. why you are thinking about suicide. How would you ease that pressure? I don't know. 
I think it's less stigmatized than we think sometimes. Is it? I think so. Okay. Yeah. I've been quite surprised of how little, let's say, awareness or education right. we, we have to provide to have people actually talk about it. Maybe it is a bit of a... We are too shy sometimes to approach the things that we think people are very stigmatized about. Mm-hmm. We have people here, when we ask them, we, when we approach them without any hesitation, and we ask, listen, how do you feel? Do you feel okay? They say no. But if you're going about and say, oh, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Then people don't talk. So it's also about how we as a society approach the people who don't feel good. I don't know if you've lost somebody close to you. My father died many years ago, and I could feel the pain of people around me trying to figure out if I was okay or not. I was not going to talk to these people. They were like, oh, hello, how are you? My father died yesterday. Come on. You know, just ask me, Helena, are you okay or not? You know, and I would have said no, but they were so... Awkward. Yeah, awkward. And if we are awkward about it, how do we expect... Totally. The, the, so we somehow have to figure a way to approach. Exactly. And it's about approaching. It's about, honestly, I've been in Afghanistan uh, in a very, very traditional society. Okay, I'm a European woman, so sometimes they, I felt a bit like they watched me as an alien, but I was able to talk to men about their most personal issues by asking them straightforward, simple questions. Nice. And they would answer in a totally honest way. Because you approach them directly, exactly. without layers. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I ask a direct question. This is amazing. Uh, my last question, and I'll leave you alone, guys. Uh, now, now that the school year is starting, I'm really thinking about uh, Syrian children going to school, how they are going to school, displacement, you know, there's no uh, educational routine for a child. Do you feel like there are psychological issues that affecting the Syrian child from learning? Like how learning can be done in such conditions? It's hard, that is for sure. Emotionally troubled child is not going to do very well in school for different reasons. They cannot concentrate. They are, they'd rather be with their families. They behave in a bad way so they're actually being scolded by their teachers and even by their parents and their their parents are even punishing them. They're being punished for feeling bad. Of course not like this, but so yeah, this is a big, big concern, which is why we have tried to approach the schools themselves. To, so in Akkad, for example, we have approached the school directly. We go into the schools, we make some sessions for the kids, for the teachers and for the parents. That is, has been a pilot project that we are not sure we continue yet, but it's, it's ongoing evaluation. What we've done here in Bursch and in Shatila is that we have approached the kindergartens and the schools, the coordinators of those uh, schools, and we have uh, offered them to come into the schools to do what we call detection and training, uh, detection and referral trainings for their staff. So at least the staff can learn how to identify the kids in trouble. Now, I would also like to point to a fact that now I can't remember uh, exactly which of the organizations. I'm sure it's IMC or IRC. It's IRC and UNICEF and other organizations are doing excellent parenting skills programs in Shatila, in Bursch, in, Le- in Beirut in general. They are amazing programs. Teaching parents to help their kids instead of punishing them exactly. when they are in trouble. 
And these programs are now worldwide uh, role models from Lebanon because they have been research validated and they, they are really, really effective. So are they affecting the learning abilities of these children? <coughs> For sure. Or the let's confidence say, into learning? Let's say they facilitate their learning by minimizing their emotional issues at right. least. So they increase their confidence, they increase their well-being in general. Absolutely. I mean, like me yesterday, I was a bit stressed, I, I can't work. So a, a child who doesn't feel so good, exactly. they're not going to be able to work. Exactly. Yeah. Wow, this is amazing. Um, do you want to add something to the conversation? That we see from some, some of our patient people feeling better after having these sessions. So yeah. we, have, we have this feeling that we have really testimonies and success stories of, of persons who were depressed and they are not anymore. Person who like their living condition never changed, mm -hmm. but they told us we've changed the way we look into things, the the the, the way we deal with things, sure. the way we see things. Uh, nothing at, uh, around us changed. We still like in our tent, yeah. but uh, the way we deal with the things we we, cha we change it mm -hmm. a lot. We have uh, people who really um, uh, demonstrate artistic talents. Uh, something that really didn't discover in themselves and after having this uh, session they yeah, discovered yeah. it. So, we, so what, what really could confirm that people, the generation, all the generation will not be depressed, that people have a lot of way to go over mm -hmm. and to go out of this. For many, many different things. The thing is that people don't often realize what is treatable and what is not. Depression maybe mm. is one of the things that people say, okay, there is something I can do. But we had a child uh, in one of our camps, I can't remember, let's say 10-year-old boy. He had uh, seen very bad things in his home country involving loud noises from bombs and shots, uh, involving blood, involving screams, and involving people in certain type of costumes. Whoa. Okay, Terribly traumatized by this, living somehow a normal life, but still not being able to walk in the streets if there is people, uh, very uh, disturbed by any type of loud noises, uh, disturbed in every checkpoint, in every area where they saw any type of gun or a person in an army costume or a police costume. Um, yeah, disturbed by practically everything in a normal surrounding in Shatila camp, which is not a quiet place. So this child was, yes, able to go to school, but was living a very, very, you know, difficult life. Eight sessions with one of our young experienced psychologist in Shatila, the boy is fine. And he's completely adapting to his... Exactly. The thing is, the oh. family didn't even think that there was a solution. They thought it was normal. And of course it is normal. But it doesn't mean that you have to live like this. Exactly. So this boy is walking now happily as he can be in Shatila. He got over his trauma. Exactly. He gained his confidence. <clears throat> he can look at policemen, he can hear gunshots, wow. he can hear loud noises, he can sleep, he can eat, he can go to school, he can socialize. And that happened through... Uh, Eight sessions. Just like psychotherapy? Eight sessions. No medication. No nothing. medication. Nothing. Mental counseling. Health counseling. Mental health counseling. counseling. And we had a case of a child, I just heard it yesterday, a um, mental health counselor in the backup, in the backup, in Mr. Angel. We ha she had a child uh, who lost her hair because she saw Daesh uh, coming into her house and beating her father. Oh. Uh, so she lost her hair. And every, once, since she's in Lebanon, every time th uh, uh, every, everyone is th thinking she's a cancer patient or something. Oh. Because, because she's physically she losing really, her hair. She really lost her hair. And every, everyone is looking with so like, competitive and something like this. 
And the, ch the child was so traumatized. She was really traumatized yeah. by, by the uh, degree she lost her hair. And now she has her uh, hair coming up and she drew a, a nice drawer with her and wow. the dress. And wow. So this is amazing. You cannot see how yeah, yeah. even... Oh, this small. is massive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is saving yeah, lives, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, it is. And this sweet do every day. Wow. It's not these two kids, it's uh, adults, kids, men, young women, name it. This so we, we do every day. This is very this is very encouraging and for people who would be listening to this interview outside Lebanon, uh, English speaking. Go seek help. Exactly. <laughs> Please. If, if people so in such conditions we can, I, I, can, I can give you a couple of golden questions like if you're not sleeping well, if you're constantly tired, if you're feeling stress on or edge all the time, if you don't have proper appetite, these are the normal things that should be, you know, for a, for a normal, emotionally healthy, uh, healthy person. Exactly. If you have issues in, in the emotional arena, go seek help. You don't have to take medication. Awesome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, that was amazing, actually. I personally.